There we are. It's there. See, all you had to do is get up and move. That's, that's what it was. You were standing in way of the uh, antennas. Anybody remember that when you used to have to have antennas on your television? Some of you kids are like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to have rabbit ears on top of my television. And then when that television broke, you just put another television on top of it. Remember when televisions were furniture? Remember that? It was like, wow, that is a beautiful buffet. Oh, that's your television? Came with gargoyles on top of it. And the screen was like that big, but it was, you know, massive. You'd have to call Dave to move it. Not least because you didn't want to move it yourself, but because you couldn't. Dave Chase can move all things. That's in the Bible somewhere. Well, good morning. Christ is alive, right? That's what we believe. Amen. Do you really believe it, though? Is that your impetus for getting up this morning to come and to praise God? He's done all for you. All for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come and we sing hallelujah to you. There's nothing to, nothing to bring to you this morning except the worship. But that the worship that we bring to you is within the victory that we have that you've purchased for us in Christ Jesus. We are victorious today. Let all the other religions sing their sad songs and let us praise God in victory. We have victory in Christ Jesus. And so we smile. The fear and the worry, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. If you're in Christ Jesus today, there is no fear and condemnation. So then, O soul... Why are you cast down? I know there are some of us today whose souls are cast down. But it is the purpose of the Holy Spirit working in tandem with the Word of God to give new life to that soul, to bring joy to your soul, to worship God in gladness, to come into His presence with thanksgiving and enter into His courts with praise. What will you bring him with your hands? The answer is nothing. He is his own sacrificer. He is himself the sacrifice in Jesus Christ. When I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, to study at Southern Seminary, I had what you might call as a culture shock. I had never left home before, home being Miami, and Miami is a very, very unique city. I see some of you like, yes, it is. You know, right? Just drive on 95 and you know how unique Miami is. But it was real culture shock. And going to a seminary was even more culture shock. I I came from Florida International University where if there were Christians, which there are, they were either really, really weird or really, really quiet. So I didn't want to associate with either. They were either really, really odd or really, really quiet. But when I got to Southern Seminary, everyone was a Christian. And there were some really, really weird Christians there too. But there were people there who genuinely, genuinely 
were living for the Lord. And they were a certain, a certain challenge to my spiritual walk with Christ. They were committed to Christ to do great things for the Lord. They were ready to leave everything they had and serve God in foreign places. There was no fear in them. I thought they were crazy, but they were worshiping God as God told them to worship him. And they were smiling the whole time. They were joyous. There was a certain sense of excitement to go and to be called to the mission field for the Lord. I think one of the greatest things that happened to me while I was there was to be a part of our missions week. Southern Baptists are, if they're anything, they're missionaries. And to be there on campus, this, the largest seminary in the world, 5,000, 5,000 men and women, mostly men, but 5,000 men and women who are coming to have a greater knowledge of God and of his word and to take it out into foreign lands and to preach the gospel. But here was missions week and what they were allowing to happen was they were allowing the missionaries to come into the classrooms and just talk with us. And I remember Dr. Ted Cable told us that we were going to have a special guest the next class, one of the missionaries. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. We're going to be guilted. We're going to be guilted into going out to the mission field. Inwardly, I'm thinking that what I'm going to experience is a man who comes in and tells us, if you don't go to the mission field, you're not a real Christian. This is what I'm thinking. I've heard the stories before. I've seen the missionaries come into the churches. I grew up in the church, and there's all, there, there, there felt this time, at times, there felt like there was a push, an urge, that the true litmus test of your Christian faith was what you were willing to give up here in this world to go and live in misery in somewhere else. Usually in some miserable, miserable place. Because God apparently only wants people to be saved in miserable places. That's your fear, right? I could never do it. And I remember I walked into that class that day, and that professor or that missionary had a disposition I could have never guessed. I would have never expected. For, for starters, he was happy. He was a missionary in Turkey. He and his family had to be quiet about where they were going because it's illegal in Turkey to be a missionary. And if they had found out that these missionaries were there for something other than the business that they had started, then they would have been kicked out of the country or worse. But at the very least, they would have been kicked out. The first thing I discovered about these missionaries was that they were liars. Wow! They were like spies. What a cool life. In order to share the gospel, they had gone into these countries to lie in order, or, or, or lying in order to gain access to people who didn't know Jesus. They chose a greater good, like Rahab the prostitute, protected God's people, and she lied to do so. 
Then he began to share with us his family. He said, well, we're going to be coming back to the States in a couple years, and I'm having a tough time with that. Pray for us. I said, pray for you? You're coming back to the States. You're leaving Turkey, and you're coming here. This is America. It's better. Better than any place in the world. He said, no, man. He said, my, he said, my, my children, that's home for them. I said, how can Turkey be anybody's home? This is what I'm thinking. You know, I'm ignorant. Especially when you look like you two. This was the whitest white person I've ever seen. The only reason why he did not win White Guy of the Year is because the award was not titled Whitest White Guy of the Year. So he stood out. He said, my kids love Turkey. They love being on the mission field. It is so much fun. My mind was blown. Because all I hear about here in America from Christians is how boring it is to be in church. And all I hear from the missionaries who are on the front lines is how much fun it is. I thought, man, your kids are crazy. They knew what it was like to live here. In America, they'd like it much better. I went downstairs and I uh, was just thinking about this strange experience that I just had with a missionary. And I began to walk across the Honeycutt Center. And there were signs everywhere in the Honeycutt Center. And it would say things like Asia and uh, South America, another sign. And then it would say, um, you know, Canada. And then it would say Miami. And I said, what? Why is Miami considered international missions? It's international missions. That's not international. That's in America. That's my home. I love that place. I wouldn't want to leave it. I hate being here. See the irony? I grew up on the mission field and I didn't even know it. But perhaps the greatest thing that I struggled with while I was there was guilt. A sense of unworthiness. A sense of never being able, never feeling like I could go out into the world and share the gospel of, of, of Christ because I was unworthy. I, I hyperventilated one day. I had never hyperventilated in my life. And I was downstairs. I lost feeling on my, both of my arms. They went numb. And it was a very odd, odd moment. Um, I couldn't breathe. My wife quickly grabbed a brown paper bag, and she put it over my mouth and had me breathe into it. And she just gently rubbed me. I felt completely unworthy to be at seminary and to be a minister for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I needed to talk with somebody. So I went to the only guy who really stood out to me at that time, who I really trusted. I loved him. He was very much like the, the men that I grew up around here at Northwest. He was tough, you know, tough love. One day he punched me really hard in the shoulder because I let my wife take the dog out in the snow. But I, I had to go. And I went to his office, and he, we went into his office, he and a friend of mine, Victor, and... It was during chapel time, and every professor is required to go to chapel. So he turned off the lights, and he had to be quiet. And I just started crying. 
I said, Dr. Pennington, I don't even know what I'm doing here. I feel so unworthy. I'll never be able to be used by God. I was bawling at this moment. I said, there are so many people around here who are constantly doing more and more for the Lord, and I'm doing nothing for the Lord. I was walking into church after church after church that had some of the greatest Christian thinkers in the world, and the conviction was growing. They were preaching the word of God, and I felt so broken. I felt so empty. I felt, Im- I felt unusable. And Dr. Bennington put his hands on me, and he says, you are feeling the weight of your sin. He said, but don't you know that in Christ Jesus there is no more condemnation? All of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. There's no more condemnation for you. God's not condemning you. Satan is condemning you. You've accepted Christ as Savior. And I'm weeping and I'm weeping. He said, Andrew, let me ask you something. While you've been worried about your own problems, while you've been worried about your own relationship with God, how has your mission to serve Christ been? I said, I've done nothing for him. I'm not worthy to do anything for him. He said, that's exactly what Satan wants. To break you down to the point where you don't fulfill the very thing God has commissioned you to fulfill. To go into the world and to be his witnesses. Jesus was about to leave his disciples raised from the dead. And there were a lot of things he could have told them on that moment. You would think, from the way that the church preaches today, that Jesus would have left them with five ways to have a healthier marriage. Six ways to have a more fulfilled life. 20 ways to manage your checkbook. Seven ways to get healthier. Six ways to overcome doubt. Everything about you. You would think that the way that the church preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ today, that Jesus' words were to go out and worry about you. But when you begin to be consumed with you, when you are consumed with you, you cannot receive the blessings of Christ Jesus. In fact, here are the words that Jesus left with his church before he ascended. He said this. Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says, none of you have authority. I have authority. So if you're going to have authority as my disciples to go out and live the Christian life, I'm going to give it to you. 
It's like when one parent puts another child, one of the children, in charge. The reason why the child is in charge is not because the child is in charge based upon their own existence, but it is based upon the authority of the parent. It is a derived authority. And Jesus is going to tell his men, his church, based upon my authority, I want you to go and do this. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations. The emphasis in the Greek in this passage is on this phrase. Make disciples. But how can you make disciples when all we ever worry about is ourselves? Do you know that the Christian church in America and in Europe is decreasing and decreasing while all around the world, south of us, the Christian faith is blowing up? It is said that England, 5% of England goes to church on Sunday. The great country of the Westminster Divines, quite possibly one of the greatest collections of theological works ever in the history of church, is now a devil's paradise. Why? Because the men and women have left and they went to the countries and those places that once we thought we once had to bring light to the dark continent is now bringing light to Europe and to England. We are the ones who need to be missionaried to, to coin a phrase. We are the lazy. We are the ones who are focused and consumed on ourselves who want to know what we're going to hear today to have a better life for us, and we don't come today to ask, what can we give to God? We have the wrong heart for church today. We have the wrong mind for God. What God wants from you today is none of your works. He has only this. Go and make more disciples. But we can't even get fathers to share the gospel with their own children. Shame. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this is rather ironic since Jesus is about to ascend. That means he's going somewhere. How is he going to be with us till the end of the age? How will we have God with us until the end of the age to help us accomplish this task of going into the world and being his witnesses, simply telling the news that God has done in Christ what we cannot do in our flesh? How will God be with us till the end of the age? Acts chapter 1 verse 8 answers that question for us. That Christ will send his spirit into the world to fill his church. And by God's Holy Spirit we are empowered to make disciples of all nations. I want to talk today about God as this Trinitarian Lord. We're going to talk about the Trinity today. This is a lost doctrine Most churches don't preach this doctrine because it is difficult to grasp, dare I say impossible to understand. 
that the greatest I can bring you to this morning is simply an apprehension. I'll never bring you to a comprehension of the Trinity. But if you don't believe this, how will you ever live out the Christian life? It's that important. Until we understand that God works as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how can we ever fulfill that great commission? The Holy Spirit has become the forgotten God. But he is nonetheless God. These are the statements that I want to give you as a summary of this doctrine and explain why it is important for you this very morning. Let us look at the statements. God has revealed himself within the pages of Holy Scripture to be one God in three persons. Would you allow anyone to define you for you? Or do you reserve the right to define yourself being the person closest to yourself, closer than anyone else, knowing you better than anyone else does? You would say, no one has the right to define me. I define myself. We say this all the time. You don't know me. You don't know me. It's a sense of autonomy, of authority, to say that I at least know one thing, that is myself. We reserve the right to define ourselves. However complex and complicated it may be, right? I'm not pointing at you, Jerry, because I think you're complex and complicated. But we reserve that right, correct? Correct? I think the, uh, the downlighting is causing some of you to get a little too sleepy here. <laughs> well, let me wake you up. God gets the right to define himself no matter how complex that is. And God has defined himself as one God in three persons. You say, I can't figure that out. Well, that doesn't mean throw it away. It means you're the problem, not God. This is revealed to us most fully within the New Testament, and it is revealed as a mystery of God's true divine nature. A mystery. It means that the unknowable God has revealed to us things that are beyond our brain power to grasp. If God is infinite, that means limitless, then our finite brains will never be able to ever fully comprehend him. Imagine taking this cup right here and demanding that someone pour every drop from the ocean into it. It's impossible. God is infinite. We will never be able to fully know him. That doesn't mean we cannot truly know him. But to fully know him, impossible. And to truly know God is to recognize him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. There are these statements that as Christians we must affirm. Number one, that the Father is God. Number two, that the Son is God. Number three, that the Holy Spirit is God. 
That is to say that all of the divinity that you can ascribe to God the Father, you may ascribe to God the Son and ascribe to God the Holy Spirit. When those Jehovah's Witnesses show up at your door on Saturday morning, feel free to tell them to leave. If they bring to you a God, which they do, who is not one God in three persons, they bring to you a false heresy that is spawned in the pits of hell. And I will show you why you cannot get rid of this doctrine and still keep your Christian faith. But the other mystery is that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Spirit is not the Father, but there is only one God. So they're different, but there's only one God. How is this possible? If ever there's been a contradiction, this must be it. But Christianity further maintains that this is not a contradiction. It is a mystery. It is beyond our ability to understand. And a contradiction is only affirming and denying the same thing at the same time in the same way. And what the Bible says to us is never that the Holy Spirit is God and that he is not God. It says the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. And they are not the same person. But they are one God. So the definition today of God is that he is one in essence, but he is three in person. Gosh, that's complicated. Yes. And it makes you wonder why the church would hold to such a complicated and complex doctrine. But the answer is because God has revealed it as such. And it is not our right to define God on our terms. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity is not these things. I'll give you two this morning. Number one, the doctrine of the Trinity is not one God who plays three distinct roles as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is called modalism, or as I like to call it, the Eddie Murphy heresy. Remember Nutty Professor, the last good movie Eddie Harrison, uh, uh, Eddie, what's his name, Murphy did? He played every actor at the table except for the kids. He was grandma, he was dad, he was uncle, he was mama. It was one actor. You don't think he played all of those at the same time, did you? They'd pause it, they'd freeze it, he'd go and change and become mama one day. The next day he'd be daddy, and it was hilarious and we loved it. But it was only ever one actor. And he'd play all these different roles. That's not the Trinity. The Bible tells us that there is one God. And we even see all three of them at one place, namely the baptism of Jesus Christ. A voice from heaven, the Father, the Spirit descending like a dove, and the Son all there as one God in three persons. The Trinity is not one God who plays three distinct roles as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is also not the belief in three gods. 
the church has never confirmed that there are three gods, but only one God in three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity is this. It is a concept derived from the progressive revelation of the Bible and has been protected and preserved by the church even when Unitarian theology would have been less controversial. Let me unpack that. The doctrine of the Trinity is a complex doctrine that the church has held on to and preserved every major branch of the Christian faith, Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy, every branch of Protestantism affirms that God is one in essence and three in person. We can disagree on a lot and often do, but on that one we all agree. There is one God in three persons. When Unitarian, that is that there's only one God and the other two, Jesus and the Spirit, are just lesser gods, that would have been an easier one to try and convince the world with. That was the very thing that Muhammad tried to do when he became the prophet in the 7th century AD. His goal was to make a simpler religion. And the very chief principle of the Muslim faith is to pronounce the confession of faith that there is only one God, Allah is his name, and Muhammad is the prophet. That is their chief principle. And we see where that has gotten them. But the Bible reveals to us that God is one in essence and three in person. My mother used to say this. She used to say, it's a wonderful, this is a wonderful way to teach children the Trinity. She used to say, if you try to figure out the Trinity, you'll lose your brain. But if you don't trust in it, you'll lose your soul. Now that's good wisdom. And to help me never forget that, she would have biscuits ready so that I would associate it with something good. And she'd butter that biscuit and then she'd quote the Trinity. Have a biscuit. Thank you, Mom. Next week, I'll bring in biscuits to pass out. Well, what does the Bible say? Let's look at the Bible together. We're going to do some speed drills this morning. I'm going to have you turn quickly, see if you can beat me there. Don't. Don't yell out loud. I'll do it. But here we go. Did you just say you're there? David Chase. I heard him. He had, a, he had a, something in his mouth. He went, oh. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Who? The word. The word that was in the beginning with God and was God. And without him was not anything made that was made. So that if you can remember, there's one other section of the Bible that begins with in the beginning. It's Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And here in John 1, 1 through 3, the, John, the, the apostle, begins with, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And when you jump down to verse 14, listen to what it says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What? The word that was with God is God. The word that was with God is God. He was in the beginning with God from before time began itself. And he has become flesh. And we have seen his glory as of the only son of God. Full of grace and truth. The Bible teaches that Jesus and the Father are one. Yet they are distinct. That the Father is not the Son, but that they are one. Go on. Romans 9, 5. Romans chapter 9, verse 5 says this. To them belong the patriarchs, speaking of the Jews, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Go back to John, chapter 20, 28 through 31. Thomas answered him. I love Thomas. Thomas is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. God shows his grace to Thomas in a way that he doesn't show to everyone. But Thomas doubted. And listen to what Thomas said once he realized that Jesus had risen from the dead. He said to him, what? Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Mm. Would that we would see and hear the word of God today and believe that Jesus is God. Acts 7, 59. It says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The prerogative of God himself. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. One of the great Trinitarian passages. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in that my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul cries out to Christ 
to be the one to relieve his sufferings. In prayer, just the way that every Christian prays to God to relieve their sufferings. Turn with me last to 1 Peter 3.15 to look at the great passages on Christ. When I say that there are many, many, many more, I mean that there are many, many, many more. But to get you to lunch on time, I'm only selecting a few. 1 Peter 1, or 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. All these words, these large titles, that title Lord is reserved for God the Father. Curios. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Christ is the Lord. Go back now to John and we're going to look at the passage, the passages that reveal that the Spirit's role is that of God as well. John, 5, or John 14, 16 through 17. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father. The Son who is God, ask the Father. They are distinct persons, yet they are one God. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Notice in your Bible that that word is capitalized. That word helper is the Greek word paraclete. And Jesus is also called the paraclete. The word another signals that there was already a helper, namely that of Jesus Christ. And as the Jesus Christ represents God in the flesh among his people, according to John 1. So too will the Holy Spirit represent God in his people until Christ returns. I will send the helper to be with you forever. Wow. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let me ask you a question. Did he refer to the Spirit as a him or an it? It's as a him. And as a him, the Holy Spirit is a person sent from the Father and the Son as, a, as one with them. Look at verse 26, same chapter. There's that word again, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In Jeremiah 31, 31, the prophet prophesied that God would pour out his spirit on his people. But his spirit is a person referred to as a he who empowers his people from God Almighty. If God is eternal, his spirit is eternal. And his spirit is a person, a he. Look quickly at Acts chapter 5 to prove my last point. Verses 3 and 4. I'm going to read the beginning part here. Excuse me. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, unless you're crazy, you cannot lie to something that's not a person. Only persons can be lied to. Why have you let Satan deceive you? He has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, uh, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. The Holy Spirit is God. The reason why the church was committed to this revelation of one God in essence and three in person is because they were committed to the word of God as the final rule in all matters of faith and practice. It is a mystery. And as we have already read in Matthew, it is the very power by which God sends us out this very morning. Well, why is this doctrine important? Seems like you're just teaching a bunch of facts. How's that going to make my marriage better today? Remember, I'm here to tell you how to serve God. I'll help you with your marriages. I'll be glad to. I'll help you with your finances. I'll be glad to. Everyone who knows, who knows our church, we have many men who are, and women who are ready to counsel you at the drop of a hat. We want to see God's best for your family. But our job here today is to preach and to send you out the way Jesus wants you sent out. And he wants you to be his witnesses. If your marriage is the best marriage ever and you do nothing for Christ, what will you give him? God wants us to be his disciples. And to make more disciples. Why is this doctrine of the Trinity important? Well, let me read what some great theologians have written and said about this doctrine. Without the Trinity, says Gerald Bray, there is no Christianity. Without this doctrine of the Trinity, there is no Christianity. R.C. Sproul says this, The doctrine of the Trinity does not fully explain the mysterious character of God. Many of us, when we read those passages, are itching to have an explanation for how it can be that God can be one in essence, yet three in person. But the Bible is sees fit to leave it alone. But here's what it does. It sets the boundaries outside of which we must not step. This doctrine of the Trinity has established the fence post of our religion and we must go no further. God is one in essence and three in person. We do not have the right to define God. God defines himself and he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John Frame says that the study of the doctrine of the Trinity can at times be technical and dry, but the rewards are great. 
in sharing with us even a little of his triune existence, God has given the church a great blessing. Some of you are saying, prove it. Okay. Greg Allison, professor of historical theology, says this, all three branches of Christendom, Roman Catholicism, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and Protestantism have agreed on this doctrine of the Trinity. Indeed, a distinguishing characteristic of most sects and cults claiming to be Christian is a heretical belief about the Trinity. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, which is nothing more than a modern-day version of Arianism, and yes, yes, Islam is a Christian cult. Yes. It's what distinguishes us. Look at the various results that those three have produced versus the results that the church has produced when it walks in the true knowledge of God. Well, here's why the doctrine of the Trinity matters for you. Initially, this point was titled, Why the Doctrine of the Trinity Matters to You. But I'm not so sure I can convince you that it matters to you. I can tell you that it matters for you. Number one. The first reason why the doctrine of the Trinity matters for you is because true faith requires us to take God at his word. True faith, true Christian faith requires us to take God at his word with no further revelation. We are all the children of Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. That means he worshiped foreign gods. And God pulled him up from Ur, from the land of the Chaldeans, and sent him into a foreign land. And Abraham didn't say, where are you sending me? He went. When God promised Abraham a son, even Isaac, he sent Abraham to sacrifice him on a mountain. And the Bible doesn't tell us that Abraham asked even a single question. What do you think Abraham was doing? The Bible leaves the impression that it was several, took some time, that the mountain was far off, and that it took some time to take the child. Don't you know that the father and the son were having conversations back and forth? That Isaac, the very son that God had promised him, was asking, Father, why are we going to this mountain? What are we going to do there? And the only thing that's told is that they would worship the Lord. They were going to worship, but, Isaac, but, but Abraham knew better than Isaac. And I'm sure up until the moment where God intercedes, when Abraham raises the knife to thrust into the heart of his son. 
that he was wondering what God was doing. But God interceded and said, Abraham, do not harm the boy. God provided the lamb. Abraham did not know what God was doing. But what an example for all of us. That one man had to endure that, those days of suffering, thinking he was going to have to sacrifice his son, but he knew that God would provide the lamb. And for us, it should have been us, all of us who are in Isaac, the son of the promise, all of us who are in Isaac should have been on that altar. But it was God who provided the lamb. Christian, if you are a Christian, true faith requires you to take God at his word. So the first premise of this, the first reason why this doctrine matters for you is because true Christians take God at his word and his word alone. Thy word, says the Bible, is true. God has revealed himself within the pages of Holy Scripture to be one God and three persons. And though we may not be able to answer how, it is our responsibility to apprehend and to believe by faith that this is truly who God is. Second, our salvation depends on the total work of the Trinity. Our very salvation depends upon the work of the Holy Trinity. If Jesus Christ is nothing but a mere man who died on your behalf, then he didn't do anything else that any other man or woman has done. He went on and died just like all of us will do and all of our family members who have gone before us have done. Nothing significant about dying. Anyone can go and do that. Our salvation depends upon the work and the total work of the Trinity because not only if God is the one who is the saving Lord, sends his son, what does that mean for dead people? If all of us are rebels against this God, if all of us are running away from God and the very best we can bring to God are these filthy rags of our righteousness... And we're dead in our trespasses and sin. And none of us are seeking after him. How will we ever receive Jesus by faith? It requires the Holy Spirit to empower us. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Born of the Spirit, not of the flesh. You have to be made alive by God. The entire work of salvation is Trinitarian. So that if you easily give up a doctrine that you say you don't understand, you have given up the very basis of your salvation. 
The Father alone predestines the redemption of His church from before the foundation of the earth to take place within His unfolding plan of history. Isn't that what we read last week in Ephesians 1? That the Father predestined us and He wrote down our names in the Lamb's book of life from before He ever made the first molecule. But he doesn't accomplish it, not as that person. It is the Son who accomplishes our salvation. It is the Father who elects, but it is the Son who does it. This story about Jesus is not some figment of your imagination that we tell our children to get them to go to sleep at night. It is a real historic fact that happened in real space and time 2,000 years ago that a man who was born to a virgin in Bethlehem would grow to a full man and would be put on a cross 2,000 years ago that everyone who believes on his name will be saved. That really happened. It was a real man. It was God in the flesh. We can't be the lamb. Isaac wouldn't have gotten rid of the problem of sin. Because guess what? You would have still had Abraham. It takes God in the flesh. To die for you, for us to be saved. No mere mortal can do this. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit to produce within God's people the second birth without which, says Jesus, no one can ever see the kingdom of God. You are promised today to spend eternity in heaven with God. But the access that is granted to you is bought and is procured by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. He further sanctifies God's people for works of righteousness and procures for them all the heavenly blessings which are to come in the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the new life that we might partake in the eternal life of the kingdom to come. And without Him, says Jesus, no one will see the kingdom of God. Our salvation depends on the Holy Trinity. But lastly, the Holy Spirit right now, this day, is God in you. Last week when we concluded my sermon, I had a wonderful conversation with John. And I told him, I said, John, you've given me a, a great idea for, another, for an, uh, my next sermon. This isn't the fullness of that sermon, John, but this last part was a wonderful idea that John shared with me after the service. It meant a lot to me. I've been thinking about it all week. Namely this, do you Christian realize the privilege that you have that God 
in you is the hope of glory? Do you realize why you should be joyous this morning? All of the burdens of your sins that weigh you down, that keep you from going out into the world and making disciples of all nations, the fear and the guilt is taken away because God is in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that is the Holy Spirit who empowers you to fulfill the mission of God. Our verse last year was that God has given to us everything to produce godliness and holiness. To be the type of Christians that we are to be for God's glory. When you feel like you don't have a word to say for Christ, obey. And God will let, through the work of the Holy Spirit, will let be what he intends to be. The greatest missionary who ever lived was the Apostle Paul. And there were many times where he preached sermons that were greater than any of us could ever preach. And only a couple were saved. And then there were times where some basic sermons would even bring 3,000 people. It is God's word that goes where he sends it and accomplishes that which he pleases. But he does this by the power of the Spirit. I hope, I hope what you're having today is a sense of less, less about you and more about God in you. You know, the truth was about that story I told you to begin this morning where I said I didn't feel like I was worthy. The truth is I wasn't. None of us are. None of us are worthy for this task. At least not in ourselves. But it is the Holy Spirit in you that makes you worthy for the task to be everything that God has made you to be by the work of the one Father, one Son, and one Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, you have accomplished all things in Christ Jesus. And the very words which we are able to cry out to you, Abba, Father, to like children cry out to our Father, come from the Holy Spirit which you have given us. Lord, there was a day where if any one of us entered into the throne room, if any man entered into your presence, they would immediately be killed. But Jesus has procured for us the right to come into your presence. And it is by your Holy Spirit that we do not simply cry out God, but that we cry out Father. You are Jesus, Father but you are our Father in Jesus, giving us new birth by the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the Holy Spirit that lives in us to empower us to walk in newness of life. Lord God, Holy Spirit, work amongst your people this morning. Give us new life. Give us a new sense of living for you. Let us not leave here today concerned with ourselves, but concerned with you. You have done it all. You are the saving Lord. It is good to know you. It is good that you live in us. 
accomplish all your will and purposes through us. We are privileged, God, to be your children. We love you. Amen.